The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Oh, by the way, there's a homeless guy that was camped out down the block. He heard a car roar to life, burn rubber around 2.30 a.m., so I'm pulling street cam footage. All right, keep me posted. I'm going to head off to Russia and talk to next kin. Russia? What? Uh, legally, a consulate is considered foreign territory, so. Ah. All right, see you later. I'm Consul General Pavel Oburin. Captain Kate Beckett, NYPD. Pleasure to meet you, Mr. O'Brien. Yes, Captain. You see, for us, this is very personal. I understand. A spirit of cooperation is in everyone's best interest. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, June the 1st, 2023. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing, it's just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. These days, when it comes to Russian-American relations, the only people we hear suggesting that a spirit of cooperation is in everyone's best interest are the Russians, and in particular, Vladimir Putin. One of the greatest lies that has been and is being sold to the West is that Vladimir Putin is some kind of threat to the world and that he's the reason there is a war in the Ukraine. These lies, of course, originate from the official department of lies, the mainstream media, which ironically has become the modern Pravda of the West. And yet every word and action that we can honestly and objectively see originating from Putin and Russia demonstrates the official narrative to be an outright lie. However, make no mistake, in recognizing that Putin is a threat, the deep state means he's a threat to their world, and that's why they doth protest so much. Putin recently delivered a speech that went viral on various social media sites, and we'll be sharing that momentous event with you as our show commences, shortly following our reminder that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Follow and like us on your favorite podcast platform and visit us at justrightmedia.org where you can access all of our social media links, archive broadcasts, and the support button that makes it easy for you to support the show. Because as always, your financial support is appreciated and is what makes this show possible. Now, they say that truth is the first casualty of war. But you know what? That's not true. The truth is never a casualty. The truth cannot die. Truth is eternal, which is what makes it the truth. It would be more accurate and meaningful to say that truth is the first target of those who are liars or of those who have something to hide. And yet, even through such lies, the truth can still be discovered. Truths can only be hidden or denied. And on the other side of that coin, truths can never be created or made up, but only discovered. What liars and criminals are attempting to kill is not the truth itself, because that's impossible. What they can do is attempt to destroy our knowledge of the truth. And the destruction of knowledge is possible, which is why all wars begin as information wars. Information is knowledge, and knowledge is power. Get enough people to swallow a lie, and you can get them to escalate from an information war to a physical, real war, in which people are killed, but never the truth. 
The truth may be temporarily lost in the rubble, but eventually it always surfaces. And isn't that the very process that we've all been on from what is surfacing about everything from the JFK assassination to 9-11 and for heaven's sakes even UFOs? Today's wildest and most significant lies being circulated by the deep state are about COVID, climate change, and gender identity. Nothing they've ever said about these issues comes close to matching reality or the truth, and even as they continue the lies with all of their money and propaganda and fake news media, still the truth keeps surfacing. It is also often said that history is written by the victors. <laughs> well, of course it is. But you know what? History is also written by the losers and by the defeated, and it's also written by some who are in neither camp. For those who care to search for it, and who understand how to search for it, the truth does indeed eventually emerge and is usually easier to find than most expect. Once someone has been identified as a liar, then everything that person says or that group says must be considered a lie, even when it may happen that they are occasionally telling the truth. Because effective lying depends on some level of consistency, and whenever the actual truth or facts do not conflict with some given goal of the left, they'll of course find it unnecessary to lie. Knowledge is power, and if the knowledge you possess is incorrect or does not correspond to reality, you are powerless. And you're powerless to act on the basis of your lack of knowledge, because any actions thus embarked upon will be self-destructive. Hence, the ultimate significance and importance, again, of the information war. Now, what I always find fascinating about the truth is that dictators and corrupt politicians, even with all their unearned, illegitimate powers and the ability to use the force of the state against their own citizens, all fear the consequences of their citizens discovering the truth. And it's not the truth itself that they fear, because they already possess the truth. Isn't that obvious? I mean, that's how they know what to censor. Hello? <laughs> they just don't want anyone else to possess it. It is your knowledge of the truth that they fear. Knowledge in the possession of their enemies and opponents, namely, we the people. Various forms of censorship and control are their only methods of persuasion, and boy, are they ever busy conjuring up all kinds of new controls and restrictions on free speech. And there's one immutable principle about censorship that you can always rely on. The only target or victim of censorship is the truth. Censors do not run around trying to censor lies. They thrive on lies, which again is a way of discovering the truth. I mean, if the government tells you that vaccines are safe and effective, then you know that's a lie. And not merely because of the statement itself, because, I mean, we know it is indisputable that they're not vaccines, they're not safe, and they're not effective. We also know it's a lie because governments have no business whatever in the first place to even be talking about vaccines, let alone subsidizing them and passing mandates to force people to take them or to punish those who refuse to. But the truth, even among continuous skepticism, does eventually emerge. But trying to dismiss the truth as a casualty of war or as a victim of historical bias is a dangerous road to go down. It's an argument calculated to get you to distrust and be skeptical of everything to the point of becoming unable to discern the truth and therefore being unable to act. It's the flip side of the true believer coin, you know, the true skeptic, the never believer. 
And when you are reduced to that state of mind, you become unable or unwilling to act because you can never be sure of your choices. And this is largely what the whole so-called woke strategy has been about. By drowning us with bizarre and contradictory anti-concepts, to the extent that those concepts are considered valid, the woke folk have disarmed resistance, leaving in their wake only chaos and disorder and nothing firm on which to take a stand. Which brings us back to the truth about Putin and Russia. The West has long since lost its moral right to criticize Russia, particularly Putin's Russia. The myth that Russia is an existential threat to the West is ludicrous and continues to be based on a history that Russia does not want to repeat. That means the history of the Soviet Union and the dictatorships of the likes of Stalin and above all the ideology of Marx, which is literally in every single aspect the ideology of woke. Trying to paint Russia as some kind of threat to the West on these grounds is akin to, you know, fearing Italy because Rome was once the heart of the Roman Empire. Yes, there is a war going on in the Ukraine, but it is merely the first physical symptom of the war that's going on in our own backyards. And it should be to our great shame and embarrassment that the person our governments have declared to be an evil enemy, Vladimir Putin, should be the one to quite properly, on principle, and morally and ethically warn the West about the life-destroying path that it is following under the likes of Biden, Trudeau, and the leaders of the European nations. Hear it for yourself, right after, on this side of our upcoming bumper, two separate introductory commentaries on Putin, circa May 15, the first by Laura Lynn Tyler Thompson, and the second by Robert Seffer. On the return side of the bumper, you'll be hearing the voice of Robert Seffer reading an English translation of Putin's Russian speech, as we hear Putin delivering that speech in the background. So now that special counsel John Durham's report has been released, those who perpetuated the Russia collusion hoax are under renewed scrutiny. Amen. As they should be. Representative Adam uh, Schiff, a Democrat, was one of the leading proponents of this false claim that former President Donald Trump collaborated with the Russian government to influence the outcome of the 2016 presidential election. Now there is a move in Congress to punish him for the falsehoods that he um, that he told shortly after the race. And there were numerous falsehoods, actually. Um, and, and he's in a lot of trouble over this because he lied and lied and lied. I hope you all realize that none of this is true, that the Russia collusion uh, nonsense that they put on Donald Trump, you can say all you want about him, but it, it it's come out. There was no Russia collusion. Now, I see Putin is saying something about Trump today, right? And, and he's... Okay, I, I think I saw that uh, Putin is basically saying that he, um, you know, he's looking forward to Trump getting in in 2024, which I don't think that's going to help Trump a lot. But you can see that Putin did not have difficulties. Uh, they, we were not at war when Trump was, um, you know, doing his best to govern the country. Uh, the inflation rates were down. The border was secure. There were no wars. Okay, this was just three years ago. And now total chaos everywhere. President Vladimir Putin says that woke ideology is destroying Western civilization, condemning far-left progressivism, 
and compared it to Russia's darkest days during the 1917 Bolshevik Communist Revolution, in which the Soviets seized the means of production and overthrew the government. Most Western, and especially American, students are not taught about the Marxist tactics that ushered in communism and the mass death toll that inevitably comes with it. Instead, they are taught critical race theory, which is Afrocentric propaganda that is not about bringing about equality, but rather demonizing and vilifying one demographic in an effort to eradicate an existing power structure and bring about its collapse. Family values, religion, race, gender, morality, and nationalism is described as a threat. We look in amazement at the processes underway in the countries which have been traditionally looked at as the standard bearers of progress. Of course, the social and cultural shocks that are taking place in the United States and the Western Europe are none of our business. We are keeping out of this. Some people in the West believe that an aggressive elimination of entire pages from their own history, reverse discrimination against the majority of the interests of a minority and the demand to give up the traditional notions of mother, father, family, and even gender. They believe that all of these are the mileposts on the path towards social renewal. The advocates of so-called social progress believe they are introducing humanity to some kind of a new and better consciousness. Godspeed, hoist the flags as we say, go right ahead. The only thing that I want to say now is that their prescriptions are not new at all. It may come as a surprise to some people, but Russia has been there already. After the 1917 revolution, the Bolsheviks, relying on the dogmas of Marx and Engels, also said that they would change existing ways and customs. And not just political and economic ones, but the very notion of human morality and the foundations of a healthy society. The destruction of age-old values, religion and relations between people, up to and including the total rejection of family. We had that too. Encouragement to informed on loved ones. All this was proclaimed progress and, by the way, was widely supported around the world back then and was quite fashionable, same as today. The fight for equality and against discrimination has turned into aggressive dogmatism bordering on absurdity. When the works of the great authors of the past, such as Shakespeare, are no longer taught at schools or university because their ideas are believed to be backward, the classics are declared backward and ignorant of the importance of gender or race. In Hollywood, memos are distributed about the proper storytelling and how many characters of what color or gender should be in a movie. This is even worse in the Agitprop Department of the Central Committee of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. Countering acts of racism is a necessary and noble cause 
but the new cancel culture has turned it into reverse discrimination, that is, reverse racism. The obsessive emphasis on race is further dividing people when the real fighters for civil rights dreamed precisely about erasing differences and refusing to divide people by skin color. I specifically asked my colleagues to find the following quote from Martin Luther King. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by their character. This is the true value. However, things are turning out differently there. By the way, the absolute majority of Russian people do not think that the color of a person's skin or their gender is an important matter. Each of us is a human being. That is what matters. In a number of Western countries, the debate over men's and women's rights has turned into a perfect phantasmagoria. Zealots of these new approaches even go so far as to want to abolish these concepts altogether. Anyone who dares mention that men and women actually exist, which is a biological fact, risk being ostracized. Parent number one and parent number two, birthing parent instead of mother and human milk, replacing breast milk, because it might upset the people who are unsure about their own gender. I repeat, this is nothing new. In the 1920s, the so-called Soviet Koltertriegers also invented some new speak, believing they were creating a new consciousness and changing values that way. Not to mention some truly monstrous things when children are taught from an early age that a boy can easily become a girl and vice versa. That is, the teachers actually impose on them a choice we all supposedly have. They do so while shutting the parents out of the process and forcing the child to make decisions that can upend their entire life. They do not even bother to consult with the child's psychologist. Is a child at this age even capable of making a decision of this kind? Calling a spade a spade, this verges on a crime against humanity, and it's being done in the name and under the banner of progress. Well, if someone likes this, let them do it. I've already mentioned that, in shaping our approaches, we will be guided by a healthy conservatism. That was a few years ago, when passions on the international arena were not yet running as high as they are now. Although, of course, we can say that clouds were gathering even then. Now, when the world is going through a structural disruption, the importance of reasonable conservatism as the foundation for a political course has skyrocketed. Precisely because of the multiplying risks and dangers and the fragility of the reality around us. Well, no wonder Biden, Trudeau, and the Euro Parliament feel so threatened by someone like Putin. What we just heard in Putin's speech continues to confirm everything we've learned about him since the Ukraine-Russia issue began to surface, and the truth along with it. Somehow I can't help but feel that Vladimir Putin must be listening to this show. It was as if he read my script from our woke broadcast a few weeks ago and regurgitated it back to us. Every observation he made was literally delineated in that broadcast. 
Now, I don't know if she was being a little tongue-in-cheek or if she was being serious when Laura Lynn suggested that Putin's looking forward to Trump being back in office in 2024 would hurt Trump's electoral expectations. But I think the political test of that possibility would be to see if, A, Trump's political enemies try to use Putin's comment as a pejorative, or B, whether they choose to ignore it entirely. One thing Putin's speech confirms is that he is not a communist ideologue, as we have been discovering ourselves over the past few years. But you can see the ideological dilemma faced by the West in confronting an enemy of communism who leads a nation that has already experienced the tyranny and horror of communism and all of its variants, including the woke joke. Because the Western leaders of today are today's communists, the last person they want to hear from is somebody who's been there, done that, and in so doing has demonstrated just how much of a death cult the left truly is. Our Western leaders, all communists, fascists, socialists, woke, they openly and proudly declared their allegiance to the most fundamental and most destructive manifestations of evil ever unleashed on this globe, both in theory and practice. All forms of collectivism translate into human death on a scale unparalleled by any other natural disaster or disease. Yet our leaders are hypnotized by the lure of this evil. And, and, and forget about anything resembling leftist ideals. That is a complete distraction. Think about it. In expressing his praise for communist China, Canada's Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, didn't base his praise on any particular ideal or principle espoused by communism, you know, like equality, something like that but on the fact that China is a dictatorship, and it was the dictatorship that he admired. Because you can get things done, right? Yeah, if you're the dictator, you can do things, but if you're the dictated too, you get done too. Oh, Canada, let me tell you. And now we have Putin reacting with, we look in amazement. Well, you are not alone in that regard, Mr. Putin. And what does it say about our Western leadership when their avowed enemy, Vladimir Putin, is quoting Martin Luther King back at them, and when our Western leadership has openly condemned everything that King stood for, a society in which race was no longer even on the consciousness of anyone? And what does it say about the West when its declared enemy, Vladimir Putin, is lamenting the West's rejection of its own great classics like Shakespeare and other cultural advances made by the West? This is nothing new, warns Putin, in identifying the evil nature of woke. Now, in all candor, I have to say, every word we just heard translated from Putin's speech was just right on every point. And he began his speech by, of all things, citing the countries which have been traditionally looked at as the standard bearers of progress, the West, and ended his speech by saying that this is a crime against humanity being done in the name of progress. Now I want to know, who is this guy's speechwriter? These are amazing observations and speak the truth. Progress is yet another one of those words that has been completely redefined by the left. Today, in Western political parlance, progressive, for example, means socialist or fascist. That's why in Ontario, we actually have a progressive conservative party. 
an oxymoronic, contradictory, and unprincipled political party as has ever existed, and that has never once in my entire life, and I mean never once, I can't find a single example, ever taken a political step in the right direction. Never moved rightward, always left. And that party has been the chief architect of Ontario's slide into tyranny. Ontario's Progressive Conservative Party is a party in complete contrast to the kind of conservatism we heard espoused by Putin. In shaping our approaches, says Putin, we will be guided by a healthy conservatism and will stress the importance of reasonable conservatism as the foundation for a political course. Wow. Conservatism based on reason? I might be able to live with that. Where do I go to vote? The only political party on the Canadian federal scene that would even reflect any kind of healthy, reasonable conservatism is Maxime Bernier's People's Party of Canada. Now, could, could you just imagine it? Putin in Russia, Bernier in Canada, and Trump in the United States. Talk about bringing down the worldwide organized killing effort operating under the acronym of WOKE. <laughs> okay, we just heard from Putin in theory. Now, how about Putin in practice? Up next, on this side of the bumper, Dr. Lee Merritt speaking as a panelist on the May 25th episode of Critically Thinking with her take on Ukraine and Vladimir Putin and on the return side of the bumper on the same theme and topic, Stu Peters, back on May 5th. If you really want to understand Kiev, I mean, if you want, really want to understand what's going on here, first of all, we've been involved over there from the, for, forever. NATO Here's a, here's a Ukrainian soldier with an American patch on him, okay? This is not by accident. And the chief of police in Kiev used to wear this diamond bracelet with swastikas on it. I mean, this is the, the Western Kiev, Western Ukraine, they can breed a generation of people into this Nazi regime. And that's what's going on here. And, and quite frankly, sadly, it, it isn't just there. After World War II, it came over here. Now, what has happened is this, that I understand, okay? First of all, N NATO and the CIA and General Galen took over Western Ukraine to run the post-World War II Soviet espionage thing. General Galen was one of two generals that were not tried at Nuremberg. So he, he got in with the Dulles brothers and he became the Soviet desk essentially de facto of our CIA. So our CIA was populated with Nazis and, they, and they, they've been there ever since in the Western part of Ukraine. And Putin knew for a long time that this was gonna come. As he says, he learned on the streets of St. Petersburg, if you know a fight's going to come, you, you, you throw the first blow. So that's why they went in, because the Donbass, Russian-speaking people were being murdered by these Ukrainian Azov and their other people. But the truth is that we have not heard one honest news report of any of our news channels about what's been going on. First, there was a big progress, and then it seems like these guys, the, the Russians got stuck in Bakhmut, which they call Artemovsk. Why are they stuck there? They were there for six months, essentially. And what they were doing, it just ground up all that weaponry that we sent over there, that NATO sent over there. It's all gone. It's all, it's all been destroyed. They called it the uh, Bakhmut meat grinder. But the Ukrainians, I mean, have been estimated to have lost over 200,000 in this meat grinder, okay? So and we don't was, hear a word about this. I know you don't, because it's a fait accompli. I mean, they are now moving to Kiev or wherever their final destination is, but they they're moving forward now. 
So whatever they took out in this Bakhmut area and the you know, I suspect, just like Mariupol, where there were deep underground tunnels, that they had bioweaponeers. And Putin actually said this. He was telling you about some kind of terrible sounding stuff. And he said, but this is not me saying it. This is the bioweaponeers from the Ukrainian bioweapons labs, who, by the way, happen to be in Moscow now. And that was a long time ago. So he's collecting all this data. He's collecting all this stuff. So bottom line is, on the 23rd, Bakhmut fell. They're moving forward. The Russian army is up near Belgorod and these different areas now. They kind of were flanking around. I don't think it's going to be very long till this is over. But the issue is what they found under Bakhmut. I think when this all comes out, I think you're going to see the depth of the satanic evil that this whole thing was with child trafficking, body parts. This is American-run organization, yes. as far as I know. Yes. And, and yet, it's interesting. One of my friends in the army was told that it was the Russians over there doing this. I said, no, 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 no. You're, not, you're being lied to by your own people. You know, the Russians are not doing this. This is going to go down as, you know, what, what if this is the final battle? I mean, yeah. you know, we, we always think wars are organic. This is what I've learned if, thanks to COVID. The, my part of this great awakening is we always thought wars were just we couldn't get along. You know, you know, Palestinians can't get along with Israelis and we can't get along with people. And it's yeah. like there's always war. No, it's been driven. And this is the seat of where it's been driven from, in my opinion. I think Ru Putin's not just fighting for his Russian border. And they they say this, the guys in the, in the Wagner group, they say it's not just it's not just about uh, uh, the border. It's about they're coming after our social cohesion. They're coming after our society. They lost 20,000, 10,000 prisoners and 10,000 of their, of their long-trained warriors to do this job. And they're not just doing it for the Russians. They're doing it for us, too. They're wiping out what's underneath these towns. They're wiping yeah. out what we haven't been paying attention to, the child trafficking, the, the deep underground mess down there that is running adrenochrome and body parts. All the deep state, what we call the deep state, and somebody was saying there's three that they'd heard there were three militaries. I, I think that's probably true. The, yeah. the red faction is what I like to call them, the, are the bad guys. This is a really evil group, and they've got military might. But the Biden administration doesn't control our military, or they'd be over there defending it, because this is the number one way they fund all their evil stuff. It's how they're running the world. Well, this Ukraine war has now been going on for more than a year, and it's looking like it could go a lot longer because our fake sellout uniparty globalist paid conservative Republican leaders have finally found a country that they care about. And is Ukraine grateful for any of this? No, of course they aren't. Instead, we get smug, obnoxious lectures from a guy who plays the piano with his penis, wears leather chaps and high heels, slaps other men on the butt. This TV actor turned President Zelensky, who acts like it's our permanent moral obligation to give him money. Because, of course, Zelensky isn't a citizen of East Palestine or some other part of Middle America. So when he asks this fake government for something that he wants, he actually gets it. The other day, he put out a disgusting video where he said that if we didn't keep backing him to the hilt, soon it would be American troops dying in this war. Send your kids to die for my fake country. That's Zelensky's daily demand. And I really mean fake country. 
There was never a Ukraine country before 1991. It's a construct. 500 years ago, parts of it were ruled by Poland, parts by Russia, parts by Muslim warlords. There was no Ukraine. The borders of this fake country were an internal creation of the Soviet Union and Vladimir Lenin. And when it seceded from the USSR, it just followed those borders, taking millions of ethnic Russians out of Russia and telling them, hey, you're now a part of this new made-up fake corrupt country called Ukraine, which, by the way, would be a country run by and for the benefit of oligarchs. And so that's how it's been ever since. Corruption and plundering masked by superficial sucking up to the West to make sure that we keep that state afloat. And as with everything the deep state and administrative state does, there are, of course, multiple objectives. The effort is multifaceted. One of the primary goals of this Ukraine shakedown is an overt effort to push for the expansion of NATO, an entity funded nearly entirely by the United States to begin with, an entity formed for one purpose, to fight Russia. The State Department's push to expand NATO to include Ukraine is entirely predicated upon the evil factions that run the global West and their desire to control a free nationalistic country like Russia. So we, the United States, are bribing Ukraine to serve as our Russian fighting force. This is why we're seeing Ukrainian Nazis and cannibals forcing conscription of every Ukrainian they can find, impressing them into war. Victoria Newland, the failure, sits before a Senate panel about the bioweapons facilities and attempts to project the evil happening there onto the Russians. These are bioweapons facilities that are intended to carry out acts of war placed strategically right next to Russia's border with Ukraine. And your media has you believing that Russia is instigating this conflict. So now here we are. Our own fake government is now shaking down you, the American taxpayer, for U.S. taxpayer dollars to help to destroy one of the only nations left on the globe that's pushing back against Klaus Schwab's communist totalitarian one-world Rothschild-run banking cabal. And NATO? NATO is a cover operation for the U.S. military industrial complex, which has increasingly become a globalist finance industry slush fund constituted of multinational corporations that deal in the manufacturing and sale of weapons of war. That's what this is all about. Do you see how this works? This is a relentless effort to impose a one-world governmental, financial, economic, and now maybe even religious regime on the West. A regime that worships man's intellect rather than Jesus Christ. A religion that only values material, that uses money as a tool to enslave rather than to free. And given all of this, it sure doesn't seem like there are very many people standing in the way of a complete Rothschild and central banking cabal taking over the world economy entirely. But you know who is? Vladimir Putin. Is he a ruthless dictator? We don't know. From his perspective, is it worth being cast as a villain by the world's press that works for the globalist banking cabal if it means protecting his people first? Yeah, we can see how he might think that's a cost he'd be willing to pay. But from where we sit, Vlad Putin is perhaps the one man standing between what remains of the free world and that one world government. Imagine that. 
a world leader who's willing to put the interests of his people first instead of the interests of the soulless globalist bankers and functionaries like Klaus Schwab and the one world totalitarian central banking state. The other day I tweeted that any public official who supports this war, who supports sending U.S. dollars and eventually U.S. troops to battle Russia in this idiotic war, deserves to be put on trial for treason and deserves to be executed after conviction. And I mean it. This isn't a movie. This isn't some video game. This is real life, and the consequences of screwing it up are nuclear war. You are listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Consider what the two speakers we just heard were saying in common about Vladimir Putin and Russia's role in the world. From where we sit, Putin is perhaps the one man standing between the free world and a one-world government, says Peters, while Dr. Merritt points out how Putin is exposing the depth of the satanic evil that this whole thing was. But when it comes to the greater war in Ukraine and the Bakhmut meat grinder described by Dr. Merritt, she commented that we not had one honest news report about what's going on there, while one of the panelists remarked, there's nothing in the news about it. Well, apparently there is something in the mainstream media about it, such as these two items I found in the National Post on May 23rd and 25th, respectively. The first one was under the heading, The Cost of Putin's Victory in Bakhmut, Nine-and-a-Half-Month Battle, and I quote, The meat grinder, hell on earth, the fortress, a blackened nightmare, and now Europe's Hiroshima. Bakhmut has been called many things over the course of its nine-and-a-half-month siege. Few descriptions capture the scale of loss and destruction. Which side, if any, has come out on top of this costly battle is unclear. The small eastern city has been the site of the bloodiest fighting since Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine. It is also the longest battle since the Second World War. Thousands of men have been sent to their deaths, sucked into what has been called a vortex of savage and relentless fighting. U.S. intelligence believes Russia has suffered about 100,000 casualties around the city since December last year alone. Some 20,000 of those are thought to have been killed. That is more than half the total number of Russians thought to have died across Ukraine since the invasion began. Ukraine claims Russia suffered a further 80,000 casualties from August when the battle started to December 1st. Another 20,000 of those are thought to have died. The number of casualties Ukraine has suffered in Bakhmut is less clear. One Russian-installed official said in April that Moscow had killed 15 to 20,000 Ukrainian troops since the start of the siege. Oleksiy Danilov, head of Ukraine's National Security Council, claimed in March that military losses in the city were 1 to 7 in Kiev's favor. However, even if true, Russian losses are easier to absorb because of the comparative size of Moscow's infantry reserves, end quote, and that's from the Daily Telegraph. Well, even if true? Sounds to me that even the fake news media has trouble believing that claim. And here's the other headline. 20,000 Russians died in Bakhmut. Quote, the head of the Russian private army Wagner says his force lost more than 20,000 men in the drawn-out battle for Bakhmut, with about half of those who died in the eastern Ukrainian city, being Russian convicts recruited to fight in the 15-month-old war. 
The figure stood in stark contrast to the widely disputed claims from Moscow that just over 6,000 of its troops were killed throughout the war as of January. Ukraine hasn't said how many of its soldiers have died since Russia's full-scale invasion began in February 2022, end quote. Well, small wonder. Had Ukraine done so, some truth might have escaped from the unnecessary carnage. But note the non-sequitur in the few sentences just read. We're told it's a 15-month-old battle and that at the end of May there's a death count on the Russian side of 20,000. Then the paper reports that the figure stood in stark contrast to the widely disputed claims from Moscow that just over 6,000 of its troops were killed throughout the war as of January. Well, the writers of the article are obviously too stupid to notice that January was five of the nine months ago and that the May number of 20,000 is perfectly consistent with the earlier January reports of 6,000. That would mean that between January and the end of May, there were 14,000 additional deaths to the 6,000 reported in January. How does that stand in any kind of stark contrast to anything? It makes perfect sense to me. That would be about 2,800 deaths per month on the Russian side. Now, in stark contrast, to borrow a phrase, the over 200,000 Ukrainian deaths in the Bakhmut meat grinder, and we'll be generous here, by taking that figure and dividing it by 9 instead of 5, and it works out to 23,000 deaths per month, more than the number of Russians reported killed for the entire period cited. So when the mainstream media speculates which side, if any, has come out on top of the battle is unclear, the only lack of clarity I see is that caused by the mainstream media's own fake news agenda. Isn't that what's perfectly clear? There are so many differing sources you can go to on social media and other blog and news reporting sites that confirm the basic narratives of Dr. Merritt and Stu Peters. You have to be willfully blind to the facts behind the conflict and willfully blind to the truths being enunciated by Vladimir Putin. So, between Stu Peters praising Putin for being the one man standing between a free world and a one-world government, and Dr. Merritt's observation that they're not just doing it for the Russians, they're doing it for us too, perhaps they're trying to tell us that it's time for the West to reconsider who its real enemy is. And as an example of the kind of irrationality that Vladimir Putin was addressing in his speech about a woke philosophy struggling against reality, up next is a discussion about Germany in recession, as explained by Ralph Scholhammer to Clayton Morris on the May 25th edition of Redacted. Germany has officially entered recession. What does this mean for Europe? What does it mean for the rest of the world? Are the policies, the Russian sanctions and awful climate policies to blame for all of this? Let's ask one of the smartest people I know, it's academic researcher Ralph Schulhammer, who has been following the decline of Germany over the past year. We've been featuring uh, Ralph here on our show. As you've, Ralph, you've been predicting this. You predicted this was happening. I hate to say that, uh, that you were right because, because of what it means for the rest of Europe. Good to see you, Ralph. Good to see you, Clay. Thank you so much for the high praise. Uh, but I believe that everybody who was willing to see what was unfolding in, in Germany or in Europe generally was expecting this. This is an energy-induced recession, something we talked about about a year ago, I think, uh, that this is how it's going to play out. And everybody who believes in reality, I have to say, must have seen it coming. Like You cannot be an industrial producing nation if you don't have energy. Everything needs to be made at some point and everything that needs to be made or gets made needs energy. It is that simple. And we're struggling against reality and now it sets in. 
These politicians knew this was happening. This, they knew it would happen. It almost sounds like it was calculated. To a cynical eye, it sounds like it was calculated. No? No, I think it's two things that combine. So there is one group of people, of uh, which I think we're going to talk in a second, who definitely want this to happen, right? They see it as a kind of virtue, atonement for the sins of the past. So after the West has been the exploiter, now it's time for us, in a sense, to throw our economy like the metaphorical virgin into a volcano to abandon the sins that we have committed. And then, which I think is the bigger group, I think the political class doesn't know. They have no clue how industry works. They have no clue how commodity markets work. I mean, we saw this with the sanctions against Russia. If you look at the sanctions, how they were imposed on the Russian energy sector, this is how, I don't know, a second year intern at McKinsey would do it, right? This was done in a way that completely has no understanding how commodity markets work, which is why Russia, that was supposedly going to break down under the sanction, is still doing fairly well under these conditions because they know how the commodity markets work, whereas Western politicians don't. And the same is true for industry in general, right? They don't know how stuff is made. They don't know where things come from. And this is a very, very worrisome trend. So we have radicals on one side. We have, as I say, incompetent groups on the other side. But together, they are a formidable force that is, that is very hard to overcome. Of course, you've been ringing this alarm bell. Hey, here's what's going to happen. You, you follow these ridiculous climate policies. You shut down your nuclear power. This is going to happen. So what does this mean for Germany? Now, we are technically in a recession. Europe's largest economy is in a recession. What does it mean for Germany? And what does it mean for Europe? Well, to give you one example, which I find is it would be sad if it wouldn't be partially so hilarious. So one of the major export products now from China to Europe is electric cars. And one of the major export from Europe to China is traditional internal combustion engine cars. Now, what is the European Union banning? internal combustion engines. So you create a situation where you destroy your export product and at the same time increase the imports from, from a global competitor. So just in a nutshell to show the insanity of the policies. By the way, the same is true in renewables. As I'm sure as some of your listeners and viewers know, the supply chain when it comes to wind, solar and batteries is 87% under the control of China. So, I mean, good for the Chinese, but that's really bad for us. So we thought that dependence on Russian gas is a problem. Well, you wait for the dependence on Chinese uh, photovoltaic and Chinese uh, wind turbines. It's just going to be equally worse. So this is a sense of, I cannot call it any differently, it's a sense of economic suicide. And it's driven by, one has to speak openly about this. There is an agenda behind this, as I said before, some who want it, some who are kind of caught up in it. And of course, also a media that is entirely silent with the exception of things like Redacted, right? That is entirely silent on what has happened over the last couple of years. And then always act to be surprised. I mean, we saw it also today with the revised German numbers, like surprising downturn, surprised numbers. No, none of this was surprising. I mean, this was supposed <laughs> to happen. Right. You've been predicting it. We've been talking about it here on the show. All of the signs were pointing to it. When you shut down your nuclear power, when you go blindly into these ridiculous climate policies, this was going to happen. When you heap enormous sanctions on Russia and cut off your flow of natural gas, you look the other way when the Nord Stream pipeline is blown up. Uh, yes, all of this was bound to happen. This is ridiculous. And you're right. And the West... Well, the United States is in many ways cheering this on, right? The decline of Europe means the rise of the U.S. dollar. So the United States is going to sort of sit back and, and let Europe shoot itself in the foot. And it seems like they are shooting themselves in the foot. Right now, they're holding the Beyond Growth Conference. And I want to get your take on this. This is unbelievable what they're planning in Europe, which is the idea of degrowth. 
So they're literally holding a conference right now on how do we not grow? I mean, it's, it's absolutely, it's absolute insanity. I just want to play for you one of the speakers that they they brought in to speak at this conference. Let's listen. Infinite growth on finite resources is not only a myth, but it's extractivist and ruthlessly oppressive by design. So when talking about growth and defending growth, there is a very important first question that we need to ask ourselves. Who are we growing this economy for? And what stories do we use to justify it? We have to acknowledge what lays below our growth. White supremacy, colonialism and imperialism. White supremacy justifies a global system of exploitation and extractivism. Colonialism lays at the foundations of the European economy, institutions, corporate value chains, trade deals, investment agreements and geopolitical structures of wealth accumulation, which means that there is no degrowth without decolonization. We need to take these conversations outside of these rooms and make sure that for all of the hundreds of fossil fuel lobbyists demanding growth, there are thousands of us demanding degrowth. We need to redistribute wealth, cancel climate debt, implement a universal basic income, massively invest in loss and damage funds, degrow the economy in high-income countries, increase universal public services, reduce working time, dematerialize, and reprioritize what it means to live a human life. Growth is one way of describing life. Degrowth is an anti-concept that means death, plain and simple. My Webster's Pocket Thesaurus points out that some of the synonyms for grow include the words increase, expand, thrive, enlarge, multiply, flourish, mature, cultivate. Think about it. The woke generation does not want anyone to thrive because that would be life-affirming. They certainly don't want anyone to multiply, which is why death cults and depopulation plans are all their rage. And they certainly don't want anyone to cultivate, especially if you're growing food on your own land. But growth represents something far more than a mere economic measurement. Your cousin, the one you had to look after, he was paying the ass? Yeah, just like you. <laughs> so did he turn out okay? A month after I left home, he died. What happened? Dad is dead. The point is, he never learned anything. He never grew. And I would just hate to see that happen to you, Mallory. The point being, of course, that even when it comes to knowledge itself, growth is essential, and the failure to do so can be deadly. Quote, Infinite growth on finite resources is not only a myth, but is extractivist and ruthlessly oppressive by design. End quote. Well, infinite growth against limited resources is indeed a myth, so why did you make it up? like the word extractivist. The constant invention of BS definitions and anti-concepts is all that the woke left has to argue with. None of their definitions correspond to anything in reality, and nothing they say makes sense as a result. 
Anyone who speaks like this is so out of touch with reality that there's no way to adequately address it. There's no such thing as infinite growth, and there's no such thing as limited resources, so as far as that goes, there's nothing to address. All socialists are imprisoned by their false premise of a fixed pie, that whatever exists today is all that there is. They have no knowledge whatever of the production process and why their continual predictions of doom for future generations continually fail to happen. So because of that ignorance, their agenda is to make it happen to force reality to comply with their fantasy. Again, in philosophical terms, this is operating on the primacy of consciousness. The left, additionally, confuses economic growth and cultural growth with the growth of some kind of David Suzuki bacterial culture that will suffocate the world. <laughs> the irony is that environmentally speaking, economic growth always translates into doing more with less. And of course, Economic growth is about life because this thing we call an economy is, in fact, people. Free will is the driving source of any economy that is based on growth and that wishes to create, not to redistribute, wealth. This is why they hate capitalism, because it is about economic growth in the form of profits. Problem with their understanding of capitalism is that capitalism is a system of profit and loss, and no one ever talks about the loss side of the capitalism equation. And when the mechanism of loss is prevented from occurring because of forced government subsidies to some crony interest, the only growth you get is the growth of a negative, mainly the national deficit and debt. And that's the kind of degrowth we should be striving for. Quote, who are we growing this economy for and what stories do we use to justify it? End quote. Well, this is such an idiotic question. It reveals the mind of the idiot that would ask it. An economy is not merely some abstraction measuring transactions and wealth exchanges. It is the people themselves who comprise an economy. And in a free society, they choose which economic activity to participate in. The purpose of a free society is human survival and well-being. It requires no stories to justify it. I mean, what stories do we need to justify it? What a stupid question but very revealing as to how the left completely depends on stories and narratives to justify its own unjustifiable objectives and woke ideologies. And what story do I use to justify growth? Well, here's one. When one person trades, say, an apple for a dollar coin, each side in that exchange, to the extent that it is voluntary, gains from the transaction, otherwise it wouldn't take place. If the person with the apple valued the apple more than the dollar, he wouldn't have parted with it. And it's the same principle for the other side of the transaction. It's a win-win. Or in other words, it ends up in growth. But consider this. Nothing in the physical world has changed other than the ownership of whatever was exchanged. And yet, we have economic growth. Quote, We have to acknowledge what lays below our growth. White supremacy, colonialism, and imperialism. End quote. Wow. As soon as you hear anyone talking about white supremacy, you know you're dealing with a whack job, to borrow a phrase from Donald Trump. She's completely lost every ounce of credibility with that expression of racist hatred. But let's take her evil premise to its logical conclusion. If it is true that white supremacy, colonialism, and imperialism create growth, then shouldn't everybody want more white supremacy, colonialism, and imperialism? 
It is growth that the speaker objects to, and if white supremacy, colonialism, and imperialism led to what she calls degrowth, you can bet she'd be in favor of them. It's that simple. And remember, as I've been saying from the beginning, the terms white supremacy, white culture, or white anything are euphemisms for Western culture and all of the positive, life-affirming values on which Western culture is based, all of the things that the woke death cult is against. Quote, we need to make sure that for all of the hundreds of fossil fuel lobbyists demanding growth, there are thousands of us demanding degrowth, end quote. Well, of course, because woke ideology knows that thousands of utterly ignorant and stupid people should be able to outvote the hundreds of knowledgeable and educated people who are the very people upon whom much of our survival depends. I mean, why not just let a bunch of monkeys vote if they outnumber the people you're against? I mean, this is left-wing democracy in action. Majority rule, no matter how stupid, ignorant, or evil that majority is. And if there are thousands demanding degrowth, why don't they just voluntarily degrow themselves? Do they never practice what they preach? I mean, come to Canada and sign up for MAID, medical assistance in dying. I mean, they could speed up their own agenda tenfold if they all just started to self-immolate and kill themselves. And believe me, some of them are already doing that. But we'd be rid of thousands demanding degrowth and left with only hundreds in favor of fossil fuels. Win-win for their ideology. Quote, we need to redistribute wealth, cancel climate, implement a universal basic income, massively invest in loss and damage funds, degrow the economy in high-income countries, notice that, increase universal public services, reduce working time. Holy cow, end quote. This is the pure evil agenda of Marxism, which is the religion of fools. Wealth redistribution is just a Marxist make-believe term for outright theft, from those who create the wealth to those who demand it without effort from each according to his ability to each according to his need. As immoral a concept as has ever been entertained, millions have been murdered for it. To redistribute something, you have to first own it. Otherwise, it's not yours to redistribute. Which leads us to the next irrationality. Quote, dematerialize and reprioritize what it means to live a human life. End quote. Or in other words, own nothing and be happy because we'll own all your stuff and redistribute it to ourselves. That woman is a complete and utter psychopath and sociopath, and the crowd actually cheered her. The sheer ignorance that is required to utter such insane goals of the nature we just heard has to be appreciated. This goes beyond one of my favorite observations, that it ain't so much what people don't know that gets them into trouble, it's what they do know that just ain't so. No, this kind of ignorance doesn't care to know, irrespective of whether it is or is not so. So after hearing that kind of an irrational speech being cheered at something called a Beyond Growth Conference, wow, the words of Russia's Vladimir Putin are a breath of fresh air in the midst of the death stench of the West's woke ideology. We can be certain of one thing. The woke culture sure doesn't want a show like ours to grow, which is exactly why you and any of your interested friends and acquaintances are invited to join us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be all right. 
Answer the door before they shoot off the lock. But Uncle Martin. Answer the door. You're making it worse. Uh, uh, just, just one second. Uncle Martin. Uncle Martin, what do they want? You. <laughs> Who? Why? Russians are in season. <laughs>